This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. What a day. Uh, this is, uh, well, just a shocking day, and uh, we're so glad that you're with us today. We're going to try to bring you the up-to-date information. On, uh, well, when I went to bed last night, it was going to be on the Edmonton terrorist attack that uh, is shocking in and of itself, but then uh, as many of us awoke early this morning, uh, in the early morning hours, we heard about the tragic occurrences that happened in Las Vegas. Uh, this is the worst mass shooting in the history of the United States. Uh, the numbers are staggering. And it all started in Las Vegas last night at uh, something called the Route 91 Harvest Festival, which is in right down in, uh, in Las Vegas on the Strip, if you've ever been there. And there were thousands upon thousands of people attending this outdoor concert. And uh, at one given moment during that concert, uh, country music star Jason Aldean is on the stage, and this happened. That sounded like a motor running, didn't it? it? No, it wasn't. It was automatic fire, automatic rifle fire. The toll, as we know it so far, more than 50 dead, more than 406 taken to hospital with various injuries, all in the space of, well, seemed like seconds. Uh, just a horrific, horrific occurrence. Trying to make some sense of it all. We're trying to get information right now from Las Vegas uh, police as we speak, actually. They're holding another media conference to try to bring us up to speed on this. I want to bring Ross McLean into the conversation, crime specialist and security expert, of course. Uh, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, of course, is the website. Ross, thank you so much on a busy morning. I appreciate the time today. Yeah, Bill. I mean, this story is evolving even as we're speaking, as you say, so we're looking forward to more of the updates on this. this tragic. What do we know so far, Ross? Well, uh, we, we know that we've got a mass shooting now, the largest in uh, in U.S. history, and I, and I, and I fear, Bill, that it's actually going to climb uh, much higher. Uh, you know, from what we do know, this seems to have been a completely planned uh, attack uh, by this person who has been identified as 64-year-old Stephen Paddock, uh, a native uh, there of the area, who took uh, a suite on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Hotel. And my understanding is, and this is still yet to be confirmed, but the he busted out the window of the hotel because there's no balconies there. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want people jumping off of balconies in, in Las Vegas. So he busted the window out of the hotel, took his high-powered uh, weapon, which still unconfirmed. I'm hearing reports that it may have been a weapon that was actually operated off of a tripod, uh, which suggests to me, this is my suggestion, my, my speculation at this point, Bill, that it was a very high-powered, uh, high-caliber weapon that was used, which accounts for the number of mass uh, fatalities we have and injuries. And he fired into a crowd, as you say, of up to some 20,000 people who were penned in, essentially watching the last show of a big concert. It was a family event. Apparently there were kids there. Everybody was there. Continued to fire, continued to fire, uh, with reports sounding like he would have reloaded uh, and put in either magazines or, or bullet ribbons at least three times to fire into the crowd, indicating to me probably somewhere in the region of at least a couple of hundred bullets shot into that crowd. It's it's mind-boggling to, to think this was going on. And, and like I said, the, the, the small clip we played just at the beginning of the segment here, uh, it, it's, it sounds like a motor. It sounds like a, a, a lawnmower or something, you know, the pop, 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 but that's actually rapid fire. And and you can understand to a point, Ross, the the the... the, the feeling that people had immediately there right now, because in that time and place, 
let's face it, they're not expecting something like this. They don't know what it is. There's music, there's sound, there's lots of action going on around there anywhere. Uh, there was that sad, tragic number of seconds there where people probably just stood there and they were targets for this guy. Well, complete targets and sitting ducks. And as I said, the, with the, with as we'll find out the caliber of the ammunition he used. The thing with rifles, uh, Bill, and for your audience, just so that they know, they they fire bullets that are bigger, heavier, with a faster spin rate. They spin, and the spinning allows the bullet to go through things. So my guess is going to be that the bullets that were fired went through several people. That's why the casualties and the injuries are so high. Now I'm also hearing you know reports of heroics from people that were in the crowd covering other people, recognizing people were yelling out when they knew that he was reloading. They'd yell at people, get up and run, he's reloading. So the people, you know, the veterans, the other off-duty police officers there, the undercover officers, were trying to give as much aid as they could to the public. But certainly it looks like a completely unexpected attack from a, from a, a, high, a high vantage point shooting down. I mean, that's basically a military uh, sort of tactic to take a, a shot like that from that height. Some of the details we will get confirmation of later on, but you're right, Ross. We've heard anecdotally about, as a matter of fact, among the victims and the wounded, uh, a number of off-duty police officers, many of them were just there as fans of the show. But it's immediately when this, this started to happen, uh, they sprung into action. I mean, their training took over, and they went into rescue mode, and uh, some of them uh, at the cost of their own lives and injury to themselves, too. And we'll, we'll hear about those details, I'm sure, later on. But uh, it's... Uh, it's, it's mind-boggling that something like this could happen. We've got, as always, Ross, when you and I talk about th- these tragic occurrences, within minutes and hours of this happening, we have more questions than we do answers at this stage. The obvious one is, how could this individual get this kind of equipment into a hotel room in downtown Las Vegas? Well, that's one of the questions, and I guarantee you the police will be looking at it. Apparently, there was a number of other uh, weapons that were found in the room and more ammunition, so they'll be looking at trying to retrace the last months of this person's life to see where did the ammo come from, where did the guns come from, how long has this been planned for. There, there's also, what, which is rather startling, uh, a report, a witness, I've seen the video of the witness at least saying this, that before the shooting started, there was a woman who was down in the crowd uh, who was saying to people in the front of the crowd that you're all going to be dead in a little while, you're all going to be dead. Uh and this was reported. Now, we know that the police apparently have since located the woman of interest that they were looking for. We're not hearing much more that that was necessarily her. But the question arises, just like we've seen with other mass shootings, uh, Bill, who knew that this person was going this way and who knew that this person might do this and didn't uh, take the opportunity to put a warning out? That'll be another question that I think we all have and we'd like to have an answer to. We've heard that phrase, and we've heard it in the Edmonton situation and certainly in this Vegas situation too, Ross, where... Uh, Las Vegas police say that this individual, this alleged gunman, was known to police, but they're very vague about that. What does, what, what can we, what can we take from that known to police? And he had no criminal record, though. Well, I, you know, it it covers a wide ground when it, when known to police is in there. Generally speaking, when known to police is in there, means the person's been arrested before. Generally speaking, that's what it means. Whether they were convicted or not, or or anything else, is another story. But but known is certainly an issue. But you look at the mental uh, mindset that it must take to decide to do this, to plan to do this, to know that you're looking at pending people, to take the shot. It's a, it's a special type of mindset that is not normal by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's, a, it's a mental mindset that somebody should have known that this person was of this mindset and accumulating this many weapons. I mean, did people not fail to call? Were they worried about calling? Uh, what's the issue? 
Was there a way of preventing this? I mean, this is just this is just horrific. Uh, look, I know the police would have done just about everything and the concert promoters at that site. They would have had undercover people there. They would have had dogs there sniffing people. They're looking at people in the crowds. A lot has changed since the Manchester attack mm-hmm. over in England, where they're doing more of that, looking at people close on the ground, looking for bombs, uh, obviously blocking vehicles, all those sort of things. So the police would have been up to, up to the moment looking at what to do, but certainly someone breaking out the window on the 32nd floor uh, is a little bit different. Well, and, and again, the report they're just uh, getting you as you and I are talking now, Ross, from uh, Las Vegas police, is there were at least 10 other firearms in that hotel room. Uh, such was the volume and such was the, uh, I, I guess, the, 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 the noise that was being created here that we're told that the police actually moved in on that particular room in the hotel because the smoke alarm went off because of the, I guess, the smoke from the, the, the gun itself or the guns uh, that he was using at the time. That, that indicates, I guess, the ferocity of actually what was going on. That would do it. I, ha- I have an anecdotal story that I haven't confirmed from someone uh, that told me, someone who travels to Vegas quite a bit, that says that they, they purposely don't have any balconies because they're worried about suicides from people gambling and those sort of things, but also that they have sensors uh, on the room. So if, those, if someone breaks a window or something like that, they immediately know which room it is. And, of course, there was reports of the muzzle flash uh, that were coming from people. So... You know, the police response, the security response at the time would have been active shooter. They would have shut down the elevators, secured the stairwells, and the police would have gone up those stairwells and into that room. You know, and it's a question also of knowing how heavily armed the security were at that time who were able to enter that room. I'm also hearing a report, though, that potentially this uh, this shooter took his own life before the police got in there. So we'll wait to hear those details. Unconfirmed well. reports. Yeah, I've seen some of the video as well. And, uh, you know, police with the automatic weapons uh, heading into the hotel. Uh, and, and their response was very, very rapid as well. So obviously they were ready for any eventuality, but I don't think anybody anticipated this. Uh, Ross, I know you're following this and checking this out. I really appreciate the, the, you taking the time on a busy day like this. I'm sure we'll be talking to you later on today as we get further updates on this. Thanks so much for this, Ross. Well, I'm going to tell you, Bill, prayers for all those that are still in hospital because i got a feeling this number is going to continue to climb, and I I take no delight in saying that. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Uh, Ross McLean, crime specialist and security expert monitoring the situation from Vegas for us. Uh, As we mentioned off the top, what exacerbates our grief, of course, is that uh, this is on the heels of of a horrific story from Edmonton uh, just hours before that, of course, with uh, a terrorist attempt, uh, as has been identified by the mayor, the chief of police, and even the prime minister in his comments about a terrorist attack that happened in downtown Edmonton. To get the latest on this, we're uh, pleased to welcome Aaron Chalmers, anchor of Global News Edmonton, to uh, bring us up to speed on what's happening. Aaron, on a very busy day, thank you so much for taking the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Please, uh, if you could, uh, I know that there have been some further updates from Edmonton police about what has happened. Bring us up to speed on what you know so far. So the latest is the suspect, uh, details about the suspect. We know it's 30-year-old Abdullahi Sharif. He is a Somali refugee. Um, Police would not say when he came to Canada. He was investigated back in 2015 for having extremist views, but at that point in time there was no grounds to lay charges or to hold him. So he was released. However, police did know of him. Now, um, as I'm sure everyone is aware, it all started Saturday night at around 8.15. There was an Edmonton Eskimos game taking place um, at Commonwealth Stadium, which, which is just north of Edmonton's downtown. Um, a police officer, you know, standing guard as per normal at a police blockade when a vehicle came 
slamming through through the police officer several feet into the air, and then the attacker got out, attacked the police officer before then taking off on foot, getting into this U-Haul van that he had rented, and um, a few hours later showing up in downtown Edmonton, part of a police chase, uh, hit four people, pedestrians in crosswalks and in back alleys before police were able to knock the uh, tube van over onto its side and arrest the suspect. Now, thankfully, the police officer just uh, was released from hospital less than 24 hours after he was uh, admitted. He has lacerations and cuts on his face and his arms, um, abrasions on his arms, but just amazing that his injuries were not more serious. And then as for the other four people, they suffer everything from broken bones to um, bleeding in the brain and a skull fracture. Uh, but again, just Bill, just amazing that, that no one died in this. Well, to start off with, I mean, we saw the video, the horrific video on Global National last night with Robin mm-hmm. Gill, uh, and it's a very short video, but to actually see that car come racing down the street and, and uh, knock uh, Officer Chernick uh, up in the air, actually, and, and then landing, I, I was surprised he, su- he survived that aspect of it. And immediately thereafter, as you mentioned, what we can see on the video is the uh, the alleged perpetrator getting out of the car, running over to, to the, the officer, uh, and start stabbing him. Uh, yeah, and, and at that point, we thought, oh, my God. Uh, and I got to tell you, just from what we've seen and what we've heard in this, clearly what uh, the the plan seemed to be anyway, from what we can speculate, is that he wanted to kill that officer, take the man's gun, and then continue with his rampage. Uh, officer Chernick defended himself with one arm while holding onto his gun and the other, and probably saved other lives by doing that. Definitely. Yeah, and I think there's there's no doubt to that. And the police chief made that very clear when he spoke with media yesterday, just about the actions of Constable Chernick, you know, an 11-year veteran, and fought off after being rammed by this vehicle so hard, held off this suspect with one arm as he held his gun, like he said, to ensure that this this uh, this attacker did not get a hold of that weapon. And at no time during this five-hour attack, you know, from the moment that he went through this police barricade to the moment that he was arrested in the U-Haul truck, was a single shot fired, which is amazing, as is the fact that no one was seriously injured or, or killed. Do we know yet, uh, with the, the, the work that uh, Edmonton police have done on this, uh, Aaron, whether or not that truck, that U-Haul that was there and, and later used by the suspect, uh, was planted there? Or is that something that he stole? Or was, was this part of a, a grander plan? Or do we know that yet? From what I understand, the U-Haul was already rented. He had already rented okay. his U-Haul, and... Um, I don't know where it was parked. However, from the from the video that police released, it appeared that he ran down knowing which direction he was going. I'm guessing heading towards wherever that U-Haul was parked. But again, there's a three-hour time period there that no one knows what happened. Uh, you know, the notice went out to all police officers across the city about this police officer that was struck. But Everyone thought that that was it. Nobody knew that there was more to come. It wasn't until the U-Haul truck went past a check stop and was actually pulled over on Wayne Gretzky Drive here in the city, and an officer looked at the suspect's ID and recognized the name in connection with the earlier attack outside of Commonwealth. And that's when this pursuit down Jasper Ave began. And for anyone who doesn't know Edmonton, Jasper Avenue is one of the busiest nightlife areas in the city. People on the weekend are generally either on Jasper Ave or they're on White Ave. So you can imagine the number of people that were out at around midnight that night. 
Yeah, the, the football game letting out people going to maybe have a couple of cold ones after the game, and, and Saturday night in Edmonton. Of course there are going to be people on the street. So that obviously factored into this individual's plan. Uh, i, I got to ask you, I've got about a minute or so left, but uh, but I know that uh, they mentioned this on Global National last night too as they talked with uh, you and a number of other folks uh, in Global and Edmonton. Uh, about the immediate pushback on this, and there were some uh, comments on social media. I know that Mayor Iverson uh, has gone public and suggested, look, this is uh, this is not an opportunity or an excuse to to start ranting against Muslims, et cetera, like that. How, what what what's the what's the tone right now in the city, Erin? Uh, of course, you know that that is the rhetoric that you hear after something like this, especially when you hear about a uh, description of the suspect being a refugee. However, the mayor, the premier, the prime minister all coming out and saying we can't let this hate divide us. We can't, we can't, you know, give to this because it's not going to solve anything. And one person does not represent an entire religion, an entire faith. And, you know, I think most Edmontonians know that and are embracing that. There was a huge gathering last night at 6 o'clock down by our city hall, um, hundreds of people there to show their support and to say we're not going to let this divide us. And I think that's the message and that's the hope from everyone is that this was just the act of one person. There is no one else involved in this. Outstanding coverage by Global Edmonton on this whole thing, Aaron. Uh, thank you so much for uh, what has turned out to be a, just a horrific number of events over the last couple of days. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. That's Aaron Chalmers, of course, anchor at uh, Global News in Edmonton. And uh, we're keeping our eyes on that situation, of course, but most certainly in what's happening in Las Vegas now, where we are getting uh, almost uh, up-to-the-minute uh, updates about what's happening. The uh, the latest, over 50 dead, 406 people, they estimate, have been taken to hospital in Las Vegas with uh, various injuries, some gunshot wounds, other injuries, as a result of the tragic events in Las Vegas. And uh, that, of course, is a very fluid story, and we will keep you posted as uh, we get further updates on that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, keeping our eyes on what's happening in Vegas, as we mentioned uh, before the news break, uh, updates uh, every 10, 15 minutes from Las Vegas police. Uh, a lot of speculation and conjecture at this stage as to who this was, what this individual was up to, how they got all of these weapons in there. But just time and place. Uh, imagine yourself at, at an outdoor concert such as... as those people were about 20,000 people in downtown Las Vegas. Uh, I've only been to Vegas a couple of times, but uh, it's always busy on the Strip, 24 hours of the day. The streets are full of people all the time, uh, not paying a whole lot of attention to much of anything, obviously. I mean, people walk around there with uh, drinks in their hands. Just It's a party town. Right? That's what it comes down to, and it was especially so during an outdoor festival with 20,000 people gathered in one spot. You've probably attended festivals like that. Festival, and I'm not trying to scare the daylights out of anybody, but we have festivals like that here where large numbers of people gather. And you're one of those people with your loved ones, your buddies, your friends. You have a couple of drinks. You're enjoying the show. This is toward the end of the show. Jason Aldean comes up, one of the headliners of the show. I want to hear, I want to play, J Jacob's going to play the clip again of, of what they heard when, when this all started last night. You hear, you, hear, you hear that sound? It sounds like a drum kit, doesn't it? I mean, and I can see why people would, would not immediately respond to it, because there's music going on on the stage, and you hear this rat-tat-tat-tat-tat. You'd think this, maybe it's part of the song, maybe it's something electronic. 
But that rat a tat 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 was rapid gunfire. Mowing down, well, over 400 people, 50 of them dead so far. And that number's growing. I mean, when we were putting the show together about an hour and a half ago, when we started looking at numbers, uh, the, the numbers at that time were 20 dead. And we thought, my God, that's horrific. Now it's over 50 and over 400 people taken to hospital. Then it started to sink in exactly what was going on. And, and the reaction, well, was chaos. All of a sudden, we just heard like three or four little pop, pop, pop. And everybody kind of looked around and said, oh, it's just firecrackers. And then we heard pop, pop, pop. And it just kept going and going. And my husband said, that's not firecrackers. That sounds like a semi-automatic rifle. And indeed it was, or at least one semi-automatic. could have been more, as it turned out. Uh, Ross McLean, of course, who was with us in the last segment, suggested it might have actually been a weapon on a tripod. Uh, they were sitting ducks. What we know so far is that this gunman, this alleged gunman, was in a hotel looking down on this crowd of 20,000 people with basically an arsenal in his hotel room at the Mandalay Bay Hotel. I'm sure you know where it is if you've been to Vegas. Maybe you've stayed there. And he's up on the 32nd floor, I believe it was, smashes out the window and starts firing on the crowd. And, the, well, the investigation, obviously, is continuing as to what's going on and why. They don't think this is part of a greater threat, a greater outf uh, outfit. Mind you, with that many weapons and, and that much of an arsenal, though, you wonder just what kind of assistance, if any, he had. But he wasn't known to police, which is strange. He is, uh, by the way, a Las Vegas resident. He is not an immigrant. He is not a Muslim that we know of. And I've noticed, and I'm sure you have too, in the reaction from some of the tweets about that. Uh, Donald Trump has tweeted uh, condolences to the victims in this tragic situation. Donald Trump does not use the word terrorism as he responded to this, as he has been so quick to do in other situations. And it makes you wonder as to whether or not the ethnicity of the individual is a factor in that. Donald Trump does not mention anything about gun control and how an individual like this could get lay their hands on so many weapons and kill so many people and injure so many others, which I find tragic in and of itself, but maybe not surprising when you consider that you've got a, a president of the United States that's in bed with the National Rifle Association who cozies up to them. Of course they're not going to suggest that gun control is in order in situations like that. And no, this is not the only country in the world that is prone to terrorism. We get that. But I know that uh, following uh, my friend David Vidset uh, on Twitter, David, of course, former Scotland Yard investigator and author now, and he's been a frequent guest on this program and a terrorism expert uh, during his time in Scotland Yard. David uh, investigated a number of the terrorist attacks and attempted terrorist attacks that occurred in London. And his immediate response when he looked at these numbers today, this is unthinkable in the U.K. that somebody could amass that number of firearms. Apparently not in the United States. Very doable, apparently, in the United States. And sadly, there will be those who will call for greater gun control as a result of this tragic situation in Las Vegas. And sadly, they will be drowned out and labeled as bleeding hearts that don't have any respect for the Second Amendment, and it will continue. And that's probably tragic in and of itself, isn't it? The number of mass shootings 
that have occurred in the United States is staggering. And, and we need to take that into consideration. 11,500 gun deaths in nine months. 11,500 gun deaths in nine months. That's incredible. In the UK, as David Weitzett uh, tweeted to me, he said, by comparison, uh, 50 to 60 gun deaths per year, over 11,000 already in the United States, many of them, of course, mass shootings. <sighs> but nobody wants to talk about gun control. Well, nobody in power seems to want to talk about gun control. Very, very unfortunate situation, of course, that's happening. And our, our, it just, it's mind-boggling when we hear situations like this the ferocity of the attack. And uh, we're still trying to find out who, where, why. Uh, I know that uh, there are a number of people that are go to Vegas on a regular basis. I know some of them from the Hamilton area that were just down there. I trust and pray that they're, they're safe. But uh, we'll have to get details about victims, people that are injured. That's all going to come out later on. Still a lot to come from this. But it's just one of those situations where you're looking at this and almost in a surreal, surreal attitude and, and, and mindset saying, I, I can't believe this could actually happen. But it has happened before. We had the sniper, and that's what it was, in Dallas a few months ago, you remember, that just stood up in a high-towered apartment building in, in downtown Dallas and started shooting at people on the street. Maybe that was the motivation for this. I don't know. We'll certainly find out in the passage of time, but it's oh so easy for people to perpetrate these kind of attacks, isn't it? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. In just a little while, a new governor general will be sworn in, and uh, yesterday, a new national leader was elected. I'm officially launching my campaign to be the next Prime Minister of Canada. That was a, an ebullient Jagmeet Singh who was elected on the first ballot uh, in the National uh, Conference, of course, for the NDP. And, of course, he's the new leader of the Federal National, uh, New Democratic Party, rather. Joining us to talk about that and, of course, the Governor General is uh, David Aiken, who, of course, is Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. David, good morning. How are you today? Uh, busy. I, you know, when we left for the weekend on Friday, we thought it was going to be a busy day with the Governor General's installation, but uh, obviously the weekend's events, there's lots of other stuff going on as well, and then the election of uh, Jagmeet Singh. Uh, I can tell you, uh, uh, Bill, that just uh, yeah, right now, actually, the Federal Cabinet is just wrapping up a meeting. It's unusual for the Federal Cabinet to meet on a Monday morning. Um, as it turns out, it is not in response to the events in Edmonton. Uh, it turns out because we've got the First Ministers in town tomorrow. All the Premiers are going to be here for a big meeting, so they've moved up their regular Tuesday meeting to Monday. But that's what's happening right now. And then in about an hour's time, the Prime Minister and many of his cabinet will uh, move from their offices on the west side of the House of Commons down to the Senate, where Governor General Julie Payette, or Julie Payette will become the Governor General. Uh, that's going to be interesting meeting with the Premiers, too. I got a f just off the top of my head, David, I'm thinking they probably have a few things they want to talk to the Prime Minister about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is, and uh, you know what? Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is the uh, this this small business tax reform. No plan kidding. That, that Bill Morneau's been going about. You probably heard about that uh, that meeting just up the road in Oakville on Friday. Yeah. Where Morneau just got it on the chin. I was just I was watching the tape of that. It was uh, incredible. So he's going to brief the premiers, and the premiers at this point, their reaction to the tax reform proposal is skeptical. I would say at best, and in some cases, 
for instance, Saskatchewan's Brad Wall, outright hostile, that they, they don't like it. But there's even some hostility among Liberal premiers. Uh, so we had Stephen McNeil on uh, the West Block with Vashi Capellos on yeah. Sunday, and you know he is very concerned that, that this is going to drive doctors out of his province, and it's already hard enough to get GPs to set up shop in rural parts of the country, and uh, so there's definitely going to be some talk about that tomorrow. Yeah, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by this, David. I mean, you know when pol- politicians and, and elected parties uh, come up with a contentious piece of legislation, I mean, they, I guess, factor into the fact that, okay, there's going to be some blowback on this, but the Canadian attitude usually is, ah, it'll go away in a week or two. This one's not going away. No, and this hits uh, at, at what we call, and say, the political biz, the Chamber of Commerce type, who in many... Yeah. Uh, cities and towns across the country are influential local business leaders. They might be insurance brokers, or they're running a uh, you know a small retail operation, um, and they're the people who you know it's, they're down at the Lions Club or at the Rotary, uh, you know, every couple of weeks having a, a lunch or breakfast, and they get talking, and they are the often the opinion movers in a community, and it's those people that are often the people who are most commonly using these special tax planning vehicles that are essentially under attack from the federal government. So they sort of picked a fight with a group that can be often pretty vocal in a community. And even if you don't, even if it's not those people, um, I wrote a column last week where you'll see small towns in rural Ontario, rural Canada, might be six, 700 people in the town and one GP. That GP, let's call him Dr. Bob, is usually a pretty respected member of the community. And to the extent that the 600 people in those towns want to keep Dr. Bob there and like him, it's it's those 600 people are phoning up their MP and saying, why are you calling Dr. Bob a tax cheat? And that's not good for, it, not that there's many liberals in rural uh, Canada, there certainly are in Atlantic Canada, but, uh, you know, that's a problem that it's, it's annoyed people who like their doctor. I mean, I don't have to have that tax shelter vehicle the doctor has, but I like my doctor, and to the extent you're attacking my doctor, I don't like people attacking my doctor. Yeah, well, that small-town doctor, Dr. Bob there, probably half his patients are farmers, too, and they're going to say, hey, he's picking on yeah. us, too. Uh, and that only yeah. festers, doesn't it? There is a new poll out this morning, and this is, a, this is the second or, uh, of at least three polls I've seen on this, that it is not a slam dunk for either side on this one. So the conservatives are going hard trying to get rid of this proposal, and the liberals are saying, well, we need to, you know, quote, make things more fair uh, tax system-wise. So the, and the, the, the polls show that you know, Canadians are, quote-unquote, split. And when you ask small business owners, in fact, they know what's going on here. There's three aspects of these tax shelters that are, um, uh, there's proposals for change. On one of them, what's called income sprinkling, where a a business owner can distribute essentially shares of the business to family members. Um, There there does seem to be people saying, okay, we can tighten up those rules. But on issues around what's called passive investment within these tax shelters, uh, the polls show don't touch those. Those are valuable for transferring wealth to generations, for planning for future business generation. So, uh, you know, the government's got to walk uh, very carefully. It's, but as they say, it's not a slam dunk, but neither is it a, is it a colossal loss for them if they proceed. Well, it's uh, going to be great theater to watch that uh, interaction tomorrow. Listen, we started off uh, this segment with uh, Jagmeet Singh's uh, uh, proclamation that he wants to be the next prime minister. Uh, that's uh, a long and winding road for him, isn't it, David? It is, but you know, uh, my NDP friends are, are are fond of pointing out that Jagmeet Singh takes over his party with more MPs than when Justin Trudeau took over the leadership of the Liberals. <laughs> good point. So I, I say that. I say good point, NDP. Unfortunately, I don't think the NDP are going to go from third to first. I mean, that was that was historically weird for the Liberals to go from third to first. First time to ever happen. I think the thing for uh, Jagmeet Singh would be: can he bring or can he threaten to bring? his party back to, um, or, to or, or can he do well enough that there's a minority parliament? Because as we've seen over the years, 
NDP, NDP, the, the New Democrats tend to be influential when there is a minority government that they can throw their weight behind um, various proposals. That would be, I think, the most that the NDP at this point could hope for. But again, of course, Jagmeet Singh is going to say he's playing for other marbles. He's playing to win. He wants to be PM. Interestingly enough, he's 38 years old. Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader, 38 years old. You know who the old guy in this is now? <laughs> Justin Trudeau at 45. So go figure. Wow. Uh, the dy- dynamic changes considerably. Uh, listen, but as you reported last week before this was actually finalized and the leadership race was still ongoing, though, David, uh, he's got some healing to do in his own party. I mean, it's great that he won 56%, I guess, of the vote, but uh, but there are some rifts in that party about policy and about where, the direction they want this this party to go in the future. Uh, there are, but I think the fact that he won with uh, you know a, on the first ballot with a you know pretty convincing majority uh, says that in addition to the new people he brought into the party, uh, and it's not just uh, the the Sikhs in Brampton or the Sikhs in in Vancouver that would have uh, supported him. He brought a lot of new people in, but also he had to have had a lot of support from. Uh, traditional uh, New Democrats who've been in the party for a long time, well, non-seat like, New Democrats. Like Nathan Kalanick. Right. So, and in, in, I was just going to mention, in the caucus, in the federal NDP caucus, he has a great deal of support, particularly from those uh, out west. Nathan Cullen's a B.C. Uh, MP. Nathan's likely to be the, uh, I think, the essentially the NDP leader in the House of Commons, because, of course, Jamie Singh is an Ontario MPP, doesn't have a seat in the House. So, um, so there is some. I think there's there's a lot of people today in in the NDP world will say, right, let's get to it. I haven't really seen a whole lot of uh, that's it. I'm done. There is an issue about Quebec and Quebec's uh, reluctance, or some some portions of of society in Quebec who do not like quote visible religious symbols. And of course, that would be the fact that uh, Jagmeet Singh is a is a turbaned Sikh, and uh, to the extent that he wears a turban, that's a symbol of his religion. And will Quebecers be upset about that? I hope not, but this is Quebec, and uh, this seems to be where uh, these fights are uh, more acrimonious than others. We'll see how he does there. And some of his, the NDP wing in Quebec is a little bit nervous about that, so we'll see where that goes. Very quickly, uh, in our remaining moment or two here, uh, we mentioned about uh, the swearing-in of the uh, new Governor-General. Uh, a great deal of controversy when the announcement was made some months ago, actually, David, uh, about uh, Julie Payette being named uh, because of uh, what some people characterize as a checkered past uh, with some run-ins with the law, uh, a lot of it family-related. Is that water under the bridge now, or is that something that's still hanging over her? I think it's water under the bridge, and, and just to refresh people's memory, she uh, she arrives at Rideau Hall as a single mom. She's been divorced twice, and the last divorce to an Air Force pilot ended in a messy way uh, that involved the police at, at one point in time, and, and some reports were made. This is down in Baltimore. The files were expunged, and uh, you know that's it. And so to the extent that um, she would prefer to have her privacy on that matter, you know, the, the sense around here is, in the, in the press gallery in Ottawa, is that, okay, we, we put some of this information on the record, and everybody's sort of moving on now. Interestingly, interestingly enough, she is just the second person to arrive at Rideau Hall without a spouse. The first was our very first Canadian Governor General, Vincent Massey. He arrived at Rideau Hall as a widower. And Julie Payette, as I said, arrives as a single mom, mom to Laurier, who's 14. And there's, if were, the coat of arms for Julie Payette has just been released. And it includes some laurel leaves in those coat of arms. The French word for laurel is laurier. And so there you go. That's kind of cool that you give a little tip to your son in the coat of arms that she'll be using. Pomp and circumstance today and probably some fireworks tomorrow. It's going to be a busy week in Ottawa. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. David, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again.
No problem. Cheers. Take care. That's uh, David Aiken, of course, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News up in Ottawa. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Looks as if there may well be a resolution to the ward boundary dispute, at least in some people's minds there may be a resolution to it anyway. Uh, We're told now that a compromise solution has been reached by one of those that was actually taking the city to the Ontario Municipal Board about this and uh, and city council. And uh, it looks as if there might even be some consensus on this. I'm not so sure if we're out of the woods on this one yet. Let me bring Larry DeAnne, former Hamilton mayor, uh, into the conversation here on the Bill Keller Show on 900 CHML. Hey, Larry, how are you today? Good morning. I'm fine on this very sad day because of what happened in the state. Yeah, right, we're keeping an eye on what's going on. It's uh, it's certainly something that just dominates your 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 mindset. I mean, just to to think of the 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 magnitude of what went on and and oh my God, it's just terrible. Yeah, as we heard it, the. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it keeps reoccurring, of course, the Edmonton attack is on people's minds locally as well. But well anyway, I know you tweeted about this earlier, but I just wanted to remind our listeners. Uh, I got this from Ben Mulrooney on Twitter just a little while ago, uh, host of the CTV Morning Show. Uh, there have been 270 mass shootings in the United States this year. A mass shooting is defined as uh, four or more victims. 270. That's to, to do the math, that's one a day in the United States. Yet the, uh, the president, uh, who's in bed with the National Rifle Association, obviously uh, doesn't seem impacted by that. And that's a tragedy in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's the bigger tragedy because... In my humble opinion, uh, these are preventable uh, mass shootings. Uh, it, you know, I looked up I looked up the number of permitted guns in Nevada, and it's astounding. In fact, I tweeted that it's astounding the list of guns and and assault weapons that are permitted without without even asking for any kind of licensing. And so, you know, they're simply asking for this to occur again and again and again. And so. Yes, this is the biggest mass shooting in the state. Won't be the last, and it won't be the biggest. I'm sure that somebody will beat this awful record as well. Terrible stuff. Just absolutely terrible. Uh, I was surprised. I got to tell you, Larry, when I sat down and uh, started putting some stuff together for the show. Uh, this was yesterday afternoon, uh, and I saw this story that it looks like there's been some sort of resolution to the ward boundary issue. Did this catch you off guard? Well, you know. Uh, negotiations and and mediation is always better than litigation. So knowing a little bit about the extensive time-consuming and litigious nature of even an OMB hearing, I'm not surprised that people look for uh, some middle ground. Uh, But yes, I mean, people seem to be so entrenched in their positions that uh, I didn't think accommodation was possible. But I'm glad uh, that it has been, or at least it seems as if it has been. Uh, we don't have all the details on this. Uh, I, I'm going through a couple of different news sources. Uh, we uh, reached out to uh, Mark Richardson, the resident, who actually uh, took the uh, city to the Ontario Municipal Board. Unfortunately, he's unavailable today, but I know we'll probably hook up with Mark a little bit later on. Uh, but he seems okay with this. Uh, I, I remember having a conversation with him when he joined us on the show a couple of weeks ago. Right. And uh, he uh, was very adamant. We've had him on a couple of times. First of all, when he first filed the OMB application, and secondly, I guess there was a pre-hiring, and uh, he was involved in that. And he uh, he seemed uh, amazed, I think, at the enormity of what was going on here with Owen, Ontario Municipal Board. Uh, it's it's not a slam dunk for either side. This is probably going to be a long and very contentious uh, hearing had it gone through, and we're not even sure it's not going to go through at this stage yet. But, but Larry, in, in, with your experience in municipal government, and I'm sure that you've uh, had occurrences with OMB hearings both in Stony Creek as a councillor there and, of course, as the mayor in Hamilton here as well. 
Uh, does does the fact that there's a compromise here that seems to be okay with both sides, does, does that take the edge off this and, and move us to a faster solution and, and, and a probably a, and a lot less money involved? Right. Well, the... The opposing signs, if I and, and I don't have any inside knowledge, I've not seen the agreements. Obviously, I have spoken to some people uh, who have a little bit of an inside track, um, uh, but no details were, were given to me. Uh, but just you know, connecting dots and and having followed the story, it seems to me that the two opposing sides uh, were rep by pop on one side, where you know there was some absolutism in terms of making the numbers fit um, better than they currently are in terms of the number of counselors per, per ward or per population. Uh, and on the other side, there were some interests in, A, preserving as much of the status quo as, much of the status quo as possible, uh, but also some of the historic uh, uh, reasons why the wards uh, happened uh, to, uh, to fall out as they have especially around the former municipalities and protecting some integrity around those former municipalities. So what, what I think the compromise that, that people have aimed at uh, is, is both um, uh, uh, narrowing the gap in terms of numbers so that wards will change, numbers will increase in those low, in, in, in those low, in, uh, those low uh, um, uh, population wards, uh, but at the same time, I don't think you're going to see the elimination of, uh, of any of the rural wards, or at least the principal rural ward one of the, uh, uh, that one of the consultants' uh, uh, plans had suggested, and that is Councillor Pasuda's ward. I can't remember if it's 14 or 15 now. Um, uh, but uh, so, so that, that's where I think the compromise is, is headed, uh, where numbers will rise in certain areas, and and at the same time, uh, they will preserve they will preserve some of the uh, other uh, historic wards as well, which I know was always one of the contentious points with some of those outlying areas. And 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 I've not seen a final draft of of what was agreed upon here either. Uh, but the sense I'm getting from some of the uh, the sources I've tried to uh, tap into right now is that Ancaster is going to remain essentially unchanged. And there's going to be some massaging in Flamborough and in Stony Creek, and maybe, maybe, well, that's that massaging in Stony Creek might actually impact uh, the Glenbrook riding, which I thought was way too big anyway. Right, and in fact, it may be just in a little uh, a bit of massaging in Stony Creek because uh, if you look at if you look at the Stony Creek ward, at least in terms of Ward Eleven, it's not only Winona, but it circles right back all the way out to Mount Hope, uh, taking in Glenbrook uh, as well. So that is a huge area in terms of expanse, uh, and so you might see some adjustment there. You might see some adjustment, um, and I'm just guessing here, as I again repeat, I do not have any inside information on this at all, but, but it's never made sense to me um, that the border between Ward 9 and Ward 5, for example, Chad Collins' ward and Doug Conley's ward, um, intertwine at a certain point, and so maybe they'll even some things up there. And of course, your former ward, Bill, which was the biggest, I think it still is the biggest by population, yeah. and that's Ward 7, uh, Donna Skelly's current ward, uh, probably uh, needs to be tweaked as well, uh, and, and maybe some, some uh, spillage either into uh, Ward 11 or from Ward 11 needs to occur. And then, of course, they probably have to do something about uh, Robert Pasuda's ward because it's so small in population, huge in land mass, but they've got to find some way 
of, of adding population to that particular ward, which means maybe taking some away from um, uh, Councillor Partridge's ward um, or uh, maybe even into Hamilton, say the Dundas or the West Hamilton area, more or less mirroring some of the uh, uh, federal and provincial boundaries that, that are being reconfigured as well. Well, and that's going to be interesting. I mean, I can recall back in 2000, Larry, you and I served on that first uh, new city of Hamilton council uh, way back in 2000. And uh, when we saw how the boundaries were drawn up then, uh, and you're right, that one that, that went Ward 11, I guess it is, that Brenda Johnson represents now, uh, all the way from Winona, all the way up in kind of a horseshoe, all the way around the periphery of the city, and then ends up way up uh, by the airport. Uh, Dave Mitchell, our, our, our friend, was the, the counselor for the area at the time, and, and Dave always used to say on contentious votes, you know, I really should have two votes because uh, well, I represent an urban area and a rural area. And we'd say, well, Dave, you, you don't get two votes, okay? No, but it, no, but, it mean, but it did, I think it did represent the conundrum that he was in. I mean, a rural area and an urban area, sometimes with very vastly different ideas. Absolutely. In fact, I remember uh, former counselor Wilson actually saying that. He says, you know, uh, I'm going to vote this way for the Winona folks. I'm going to vote this way for the Glamour folks because their interests are different. Now, of course, at the end of the day, he had to vote once, but he voiced that. And that was a, a graphic illustration, I think, of, of the sort of communities of interest that didn't exist in, the, in, in, in that particular configuration. So maybe this is an opportunity to, to have fixed that at least now. How is the question, and I guess we'll find out. And I'm also hearing speculation that uh, part of Ward 1, the Ainsley Wood neighborhood, which I guess is the furthest uh, uh, from the, it actually may be included into the Dundas riding. Now, and again, I'm not so sure what's going to be happening there, but uh, it's uh, it's probably still not without some contention that uh, that people are going to look at this. But on the other hand, Larry, I, and you and I have had past conversations about this and agreed to disagree on some of the finer points mm -hmm. in this debate. But I, I would contend that aside from the idea of, of community identities, and by that I mean Dundas, Ancaster, Stony Creek, uh, Glenbrook, Binbrook, places like that, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that people really care too much whether or not they're in Ward 4 or 3 or whatever the case might be. It's an arbitrary border. Uh, but you do need to represent, and I think you do need to to, to acknowledge uh, community hubs, and, and, and it looks yes. like this compromise is going to do that. Yes, it seems that way. You're right, and you and I have had conversations on this are not always aligning in our and, and, and I'm sorry that you had the wrong view on that, but I mean, I'm willing to, to let that go by. <laughs> I will, uh, I will <laughs> defer to expertise, for sure. Uh, but, but, but you're right. I, it, it, you're never going to make everybody happy, and I'm sure that there's some people, in fact, I think even in the article that I read in the paper, the uh, Mr. Richardson, who who's bringing this forward, even he said he's not entirely happy, and his lawyer said the same thing with, with the compromise. But it's, it's at least a compromise. And, you know, uh, government is the art of the possible. And so this is a way of, of, of trying to make it better. And it's an evolving thing. At some point, as population shifts as well, people will also uh, have a chance to look at this again at the appropriate time. So I, I'm, you know, if everything that I'm being told and have read uh, is, is accurate, I'm, I'm pleased with, uh, with the fact that they've managed to uh, find a way of of, of at least having a conversation and looking at common solutions rather than leaving it up to the whim, uh, as, as expert as that is, uh, of, a, of a, a legal process. Something I'd like to see happen here, and I didn't notice this in the compromise, but maybe part of this greater discussion, 
is is uh, something that you and I did agree on, and I think everybody did. And it was one of, actually one of the few points about the city council position that, that I agreed with is this shouldn't be in the hands of council to begin with. And and the government, the federal, the provincial government rather, has to relook at this and and simply say, look at appoint an independent body to do this for every yeah. jurisdiction. Something I don't care what they do, yeah. but don't throw it onto the laps of 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 a local council like this because it just is fraught with all sorts of dangers and and pitfalls. And we saw, I think, evidence of that with with this process. Yes, well, for sure. And at the very least, people are very skeptical when individuals whose political fortunes are dictated by the kind of uh, boundaries that eventually are settled upon are the ones that also have to make a decision. People just say, you know, well, even though their intentions may be good, it just doesn't pass the smell test. So there should be a third party, as there is with the province and the feds, where there is there are commissions that look at these things and they have certain parameters that they must uh, adhere to, uh, and, and then they pass it on for comment to the politicians as well. And I'm not naive enough to believe that there isn't some political influence even in that third-party process at the other levels of government, but at least it seems fair, and it probably at the end of the day is fair. You know, gerrymandering is, is very dangerous. And, you know, you look at what happens in, in the United States where, where it's not that, that voters select their representatives, but representatives select their voters and carve out uh, jurisdictions that absolutely make little sense, and it's legal uh, down there. And it's legal. I mean, <laughs> they do it in a in a transparent, legal way, and they do it at the state level. So, if you control the state, you control who gets elected at the end of the day, or has a great chance of getting elected. And that isn't right. And and we see the problems that you know that that, that engenders, in, because it, it it brings ideology into it, and so on as front and center rather than as part of the mix, because ideology will always be there and maybe it should be there, but it shouldn't be front and center and the only thing that drives decision-making. Uh, and uh, so we need to find a better way of doing that at the municipal level as well. we got a minute left. Let me ask you something. And We're told that yeah. City Council okayed this compromise uh, behind closed doors. Oh. Uh, uh, it, was that necessary? Well, I don't know um, that, that they've okayed it because it has to go to the, to the OMB, but, but look, if, if, if city council staff, in this case probably the legal department, was engaged in a negotiations around compromises uh, and council had taken some positions that they wanted advanced at the OMB, then it's only natural that, that the staff of the city would go to those councilors and say, here's what you wanted, here's what I think we can get, how do you feel about that? So to me, if that happened, it's only appropriate. All right. Uh, listen, I can tell by the background noise, it sounds like you're on no-no duty today. I, so. I am on no-no duty, and I have a, a, a little two-year-old who's got a bit of a croup, and he's cranky today. He's the sweetest thing in the world, so his grandma is occupying him while I'm on the radio. He can't understand why I'm on the phone. All right. Oh, yes. All right. Well, get back to it then, okay? Thank you. They need Thank your you full support much. on that. Larry, always a pleasure. Thank Thanks you. for this today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.